Galatians chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 15 as we continue on through this book where Paul is just really taking a lot of time to get to the heart of the gospel, to get to, the, to where does, how, or how does a person have righteous standing before God, since we're all sinners, and how, how they'd had struggles with that in Galatia, because people would come in after Paul had told them, just put your faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross, and righteousness will be yours before God. You will be saved from your sins. You will have eternal life in Christ. And then people came in, Jewish people came in and said, well, that's all fine, but first, men have to be circumcised. But first, you have to keep these parts of the law, or you have to keep the law. Then you can have Jesus, and then you can be saved. And so he's been working his way through this problem uh, that they've been having. And now uh, in verse 15, we kinda, we've, we've covered verses 15 and 16 already to some degree, but we're going to review some of that this morning. He says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is, mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given, for if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. <clears throat> you know, when you, when you undertake something or you join someone in something, understanding their plan and knowing how to use the tools to accomplish the plan are invaluable as you head into a job, right? So if you're building something, you know, if, or if you're initiating some sort of a new uh, process or program, it's really helpful to have the person who created that thing that you're building. They first came up with the idea or, or they know what they're, what they're going to build to explain to you, well, what are we doing? What tools are we going to use? And how are those tools used in this process? Otherwise, you might walk up to the project with a whole different thing in mind and grab a tool that wasn't intended for that purpose. And that's really what's going on here 
in, in the situation in Galatia, or any, any time when people say, oh, well, God gave the law, the law must be the way to get to be right with him. So you've you got to back up and say, well, what is God doing, and what, how, how is he using those tools that are there, the law being just one of those tools, in that process? <clears throat> and in, in verses 15... Uh, through 18, and we're, we covered most of this a few weeks ago. But I want to back up and say, he says, you understand it from a human perspective. When you make a covenant with someone else, when you make a contract, when you make an agreement, you can't just change it in the middle. So the promise that was made to Abraham, God made a covenant, a promise with Abraham. Abraham believed God and what? was reckoned to him as righteousness. How is it that Abraham was considered righteous? Because he was so much better than everybody else? No, because he believed God. He trusted God that he was going to send the seed, right? So God doesn't randomly change his conditions in the middle, does he? And when the law came, nothing in the promise to Abraham changed. Just like the hundreds of years before the law, between Abraham and the giving of the law at the Exodus, nothing had changed. People were made righteous all, always when they believed God's promise and had righteousness credited to them. The line continued. And if, Anna, if you could put up that first slide, just a simple uh, illustration or diagram of that, you know, it goes all the way back to, as we saw before, Genesis 3.15, when God told the serpent, from the seed of the woman will come the one that will crush your head. He will crush your head. So it means one person, not all the descendants, but there's one who's coming. And the line goes from Genesis 3.15 all the way to that seed who is Jesus, who crushed Satan's head, who, who defeated sin for all time. It's about the seed, okay? And so the line continues. Everything that happens in between are tools, are things for God to make that process obvious to us and to implement it for us. And so if you remember, we went and, and go with me now to Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. <clears throat> Here, one of the times where God speaks his promise to Abraham, says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, this is when he was willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is upon the seashore. So that far into verse 18, clearly he's talking about the fact that God was going to give Abraham many, many descendants, right? So the word seed, singular, but means a, a corporate idea. When you get to the, then continue on in verse 18, it says, And your seed shall possess the gate of, and your, your translation might say their enemies or his enemies. 
In the Hebrew, the pronoun is singular. So I believe when he says this, this part here, he's talking singular. One person that he's talking about. Who is going to possess the gate of their enemies? In other words, be victorious over their enemies? Well, it's the seed. Christ will be victorious. And I think that's what Paul's getting at back in Galatians. There is one singular seed, which continues, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So it's always pointing ahead to the one, to the seed, Jesus. And that's that, that, that constant line all the way through redemptive history. And if Anna, you just go ahead and go to the next slide. You can see it's narrowed down where the seed's going to come from, right? The flood at Noah, and by the way, this, if you're, if you're into really fine details, this timeline is not to scale. <clears throat> so don't concentrate on that. But at, at Noah, it became clear what line the seed was coming through, right? Actually, back at Shem was the first time. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about how, how Eve, when Shem was born, said, oh, here is a seed I had, have. Okay? But then it went through Noah, and, and which, was, which one of his sons would, would the line go through? Well, when Abraham came on the scene and this promise was made, it became clear that it was through the line of Shem because Abraham was a descendant of Shem. But then the promise was made to him. Okay? Continue on, and, and we're going to have some things happen here. But then later, David, the promise was made that it was through David that the Messiah would come in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so God all along just keeps reminding them that there is the coming one, the seed, who is going to crush the serpent's head. That's something that hasn't changed since day one of humanity being sinful. God had a plan in place and implemented it immediately when Adam and Eve sinned. And so, how is it that a person becomes right with God? Well, it started with Adam and Eve. They, for them, it was to believe God that he would send the seed who would crush the serpent's head. For Abraham, it was to believe God that he would bless all the nations through him, through the seed that he would send. It continued on down even to David, that he would send the descendant, the seed, who would be the king on his throne and reign forever. And of course, that's expanded. This is just a, a very bare-bones outline I'm giving you here. And that's why, as, as we go, if we go back to Galatians chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. So, so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul clarifies for us that God was talking in the singular there in verse 18 of back in, in Genesis 22. And then he says, And what I am saying is this, that the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. In other words, the promise has been continuous. And particularly here, the promise to Abraham. God hasn't changed that promise. Bringing the law did nothing to change the way a person is made right with God. Has it occurred from 
Abraham's time, all the way up. It says 430 years. That's probably from the last time the promise was actually given to Jacob through the years in Egypt. However you calculate those 430 years, it's hundreds of years. After doing the same thing for hundreds of years, was God going to say, oh, by the way, I've changed this. Now what you're going to do is you're going to have to do everything according to my law. Then you can be righteous. No, that's not the way God works. He made a promise, and the promise is consistent. So verse 18 then says, For if the inheritance is based on law, so inheritance, the the benefits, the things that God gives graciously in the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Paul's saying we can go back. We can say that God told Abraham, I will give you these things. And he made promises to his descendants that became a nation. But he made also that promise of the seed who would bless all the nations. So God put the promise of blessing all the nations and specifically blessing the many dependents of Abraham on himself in Genesis 15, because when he made that that promise back in Genesis 15, do you remember what he did? He made a covenant to help Abraham understand how committed he was to it. And when people made a covenant in those days, one of the ways they would do it is they would take animals. And God instructed Abraham to take a number of animals. And those animals were, were, were slaughtered, were split down the middle, and one half on one side of a, of a little valley and one half on the other. And then the people making the covenant would walk together between those animals. <clears throat> In essence, what they were saying, if either you or I break this covenant, may we become like these animals who were torn asunder. And the idea was that they then became united, bound together in a very special way. But you remember in Genesis 15, God didn't have Abraham pass between the animals. God, represented by a burning torch and a burning oven, I believe it was, walked through, went through alone. Abraham didn't pass between the animals. God put the whole burden of this covenant of the things that he had promised on himself. It wasn't dependent on Abraham's doing something. It was just, all he had to do was believe. Trust the God who made the promise. And then, of course, in a sense, that that then passed down to the generations. It was a promise. It was based on promise. The fact that a law was given to the descendants of Abraham later couldn't mess up what God had already said was so. What God had already been operating with with Abraham and then his descendants for centuries. And so if the law doesn't impact the promise, doesn't impact how you're made righteous, doesn't impact the blessings that God said he would give, Paul anticipates a question in verse 19. Why the law then? What have we got this thing here for? 
Why did God give it? And, and this is really where it's critical that we understand God is implementing a tool for his purposes. We dare not take his tool and implement it for things he never intended it to do. And so as we continue in verse 19, he says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So the basic answer is because of transgressions, because of law-breaking. Oh, well, there was no law. Right. Were people sinning? They were. Okay. And sin has been a part of the human race ever since Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And everything that would keep the promised seed from coming was because of what? Transgressions, sin, right? Breaking God's way. And these are evident in creation, God's way, right? Romans 1 talks about how we just look around at creation and we know there's a creator. He's got a way that he, that he created things and how they work. And we can see all of his greatness. Romans 1 also tells us that he has put that in our hearts, right? The understanding that there is a God and that there is right and wrong. Well, the law just came in order to spell that out clearly for the nation of Israel, okay? Because it was given to them, right? At the Exodus, the law was given. And then there's a really key phrase in there, verse 19. It was added because of transgression, and jump over the middle part of the verse, until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. So if you catch the basic flow of that, the law, and you can go ahead and go to the next slide, Anna. <clears throat> given at the Exodus, given to the nation of Israel until the seed would come. In other words, the law is temporary. It had a, had a point to which it was going. It was used only until its purpose had been accomplished. And that's why Jesus blatantly said he hadn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And he did that, first of all, by keeping it perfectly. Jesus never violated the Mosaic law. He was never a transgressor of the law. But he also fulfilled the law by being the one that it was used to make it possible for him to come. You say, what do you mean, make it possible for him to come? Well, stop and think about the line up here. Really, that line is made up of people, right? Descendants of Abraham, through whom God was going to bring this one seed. This one who would be born of a woman, but would be also the, the son of God. Right? How, how would we get to that point? How would that nation even survive to be able to bring the promised seed. Well, the law is a, a preventative. The law is a, it's, it's a good thing. If you look at Romans chapter 7, verse 12, it describes the law, so then the law 
is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I remember a point in my life where I came across that, that verse, and it kind of surprised me a little. Because growing up in the church, it's like, grace is good. The law is bad. Doesn't that seem like the natural progression? But here it says, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Because what God gave to the nation of Israel in order to protect them, in order to help them sustain through all that time, contains what some would call the moral law. This contains what is right and wrong so that they would know where, what that standard was, right? And so it's not that the law is bad. It is. It's holy. It's right. It's good. But its purpose was to make that clear to the people of Israel. Because left to do things their own way, and without the discipline of God, the people of Israel would have disappeared shortly after having arrived in the Promised Land. The law contained truth and how to do things in keeping with how God had created human beings to be. We can't ignore that truth. That law, that, that moral law, which is consistent, right? It hasn't, the moral law of God hasn't changed, right? It's still wrong to murder, even though we are not under the Mosaic law. It's still wrong to commit adultery, even though we are not under the Mosaic law. That has always been, it was there before the Mosaic law, it continues beyond, right? Those are our moral absolutes. They put up boundaries that kept the nation from self-destruction. As Paul makes clear in Romans, the law is good, but it has to be used for the purpose it was intended for. It was intended to build a fence, you could say, for the people, so that they wouldn't, without God's truth, just totally go into evil. And God's discipline pulled them back, right? They went into Babylon for 70 years because of their lawlessness, their lack of care of what God's way was. He used that to, to correct them, to bring them back in again, right? But it was also to bless them. By doing, God, doing things God's way, it naturally brings good things. Operating according to your design keeps things running smoothly. If you maintain a car according to the way it was designed, it will serve you well and last for a long time. It only makes sense that the nation Israel flourished when God's ways were obeyed. And God joyfully blessed them when they observed his ways. Now, of course, Israel never did it perfectly, did they? But the more they followed God's ways and the things that he laid out for them, the more they were blessed. And God did that to help them progress and move forward so that the seed could come. But also the law isn't all moral law, is it? There are dietary laws, and there are feasts that we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. Uh, there are all kinds of laws that made them distinct as a nation among all the other nations. If you remember, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Ezra's problem, how the people, after they came back from the exile, started intermarrying with the people around them. 
And Ezra took some strong measures to say, no, you cannot do that. You must be a separate people. God has called you out to be distinct. Because through you, he didn't say this, but but it was through them that the Messiah was going to come. So if they intermarried with the people, became indistinct, the collective seed of Abraham would be destroyed through diffusion. They would just kind of spread out into all the nations of the world. And where would be the line of the promised seed? It would eventually cease to exist. So God forbid them to intermarry with the other people groups, and he made them unique through his law because it told them how to cook and eat, how to work, how to govern, to do business, to dress, to worship, to marry, to care for sickness, to train children, and just about every other aspect of their lives. It showed, here is how you will be my people. Here is how you will be distinct from the nations. Here is how you will remain together as a people. And so God gave them a culture which was drastically different from the nations around them when they followed God's law. The line of the promised seed required this. So God, you could say, gave the law, and you can see I pictured it as something covering over the line, as a sense of protection to keep that line going. But till when? Till the seed should come, right? Verse 19 of Galatians 3, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So we need to see the law through that perspective. It was what God was using for the nation of Israel to, to point them toward righteousness, to make them distinct, and to protect them, well, from themselves. Now, in the middle of verse 19, there's that issue of a mediator, right? It says it was ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Then verse 20 says, Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. So the law came, and, and we're not entirely sure the role that angels played. It's alluded to vaguely in the Old Testament, and the Jewish people have a lot of traditions about that idea of the, the angels being involved. It's stated again, talked about in the New Testament. You can do that study. Um, but they were part, they were there clearly in large numbers on Mount Sinai. But the mediator, who took the law from God with the angels involved to the people? Well, Moses did, right? By the agency of a mediator. But what do you need a mediator for if you have a promise that is made based on one person? See, in Genesis 15, remember, God put it all on his own back. He made it dependent entirely on him, the the keeping of the promise. The only requirement, you could say, being that they believe, that Abraham believe, that his descendants believe. Don't need a mediator there. Although interesting, Jesus played both roles, didn't he? Because he, he provided the end of the promise for those who believe, but he also became a mediator between God and man as far as righteousness is concerned related to the law, right? Because he kept the law fully. He paid for all the sins, all the violations of the law. 
There you need a mediator with the law. But the heart of it is, is salvation, righteousness, comes by believing God and having his righteousness credited to your account based on what Jesus, the seed, would do. That has always been the plan down through the centuries. Centuries. So verse 21 continues with another question Paul comes up with. He says, so is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Do we have two competing means of salvation here? He says, may it never be. They work together. They are complementary. They are tool. The law is simply a tool that God put in place to accomplish what he was doing in bringing salvation to the world. Because the law cannot save. That's been clear all the way through here. And as he says here, is the law contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which is, was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the law can't give life, can it? Because if, if, if you remember back in verse 10 of this same chapter, it says, For as many as are the works of the law are are of the works of the law, are under a curse, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Break a law, you're done, right? You have the curse on you. Everyone has violated God's law. So what the law does is it doesn't, doesn't save you, it doesn't bring life, in fact, it points out that you don't have life. It points out that you are under condemnation. It points out that you deserve death. If the law could bring righteousness, then Jesus would have, he died for nothing, right? That's what we saw back in chapter 2, verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. No, we needed a Savior, right? Because no one has ever become righteous by keeping the law. Because everyone has violated it. Not just the Mosaic Law. The, the, those truths that are based on God's character of what is right and wrong. We've all violated those. Over and over and over, right? Many times. So the law doesn't make anyone Righteous. Never has. Never will. That wasn't its purpose. In fact, if we go back to Romans chapter 7, we were at before, we were in verse 12. Now go to Romans chapter 7, verse 13. <clears throat> Paul puts, teaching on this same idea, says, he talked about the law, which was good and righteous and holy in the verse before, right? Now he says, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. In other words, it pointed out the sin. Compared to God's righteous standard, Boy, my sin looked like it really is. 
When we stay away from what's holy and what's right and what's good, we can kind of temporarily appear pretty good, can't we? Better than the guy standing next to me. Better than that guy in the gutter. But next to God's holy standard, what shows his righteous character, sin becomes utterly sinful. It's pointed out. It's made glaringly obvious. There's the role of the law, is to show us for what we truly are. And what does it do? Well, it shuts us all up under sin, Paul tells us. Verse 22. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Puts us all in the same category, doesn't it? The law came to make it obvious to sinners what has been obvious to God all along. The law is like a CAT scan or an MRI. Someone might, might be in denial that they have cancer. But these tools can make it obvious that inside your body, this stuff is growing. It's spread to these different organs, right? That's what the law does for us. On the outside, we think, ah, I look pretty good. The law comes along and says, no, just did a scan and you are terminal. You are going to die. You are in desperate need of a savior. And like the medical scans, you can't go and do another MRI to get rid of the cancer, can you? You can't say, oh, well, I don't like that. Do another one. That doesn't change it, does it? Going back to the law will not change the diagnosis. It will just show once again, no, you are a sinner. You are under the curse. You are under condemnation. All the law can do is reveal your condition. Coming back again and again won't produce new results. Why did God do that? Verse 22 again says, So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Because until we know that we are without hope on our own, we won't come to the Savior. We'll keep trying to fix ourselves. We'll keep trying to make it right on our own. Unlike medical treatments for cancer, Jesus has the cure that works 100% of the time. Out of faith in the Messiah, that's that word ek that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the source is out of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah comes salvation to those who enter into a state of believing in him. That's the only way that sin can be forgiven and righteousness can be credited to a sinner's account. No longer a negative deficit, but in Christ, when we become united with Christ, his death pays for all those sins, and in our sin record, all of his righteousness is now in our account. So when God reckons who we are and what we are, he says, oh, you are righteous just like my son Jesus because you've been united with him. How? Through the promise, through believing, through having been joined to him. 
So the perspective from the one who designed the plan for our salvation is so critical. We can't expect to understand it without his revelation in the Bible, especially when we come with a built-in tendency to want to find a way to earn our own way. We're so prone to misusing what he's provided for another purpose. There's only one way, though, to a righteous relationship, a right relationship with God. That's by entrusting yourself to Jesus, saying, I see the diagnosis, I can't do anything about it. I accept your gift of forgiveness that you purchased on the cross. I receive your gift of eternal life because I have no life in and of myself. I recognize the law gives me no life. It just shows what a sinner I am. Jesus, save me. Save me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for providing that for us. Thank you for Paul's clear teaching here that helps us to understand we can't use a diagnostic tool to cure. We have to come to the Savior. We have to know him. We have to entrust ourselves to his care. And then then the hope that it gives us for the future is so great. Thank you for that. Uh, We know that the cure for sin brings eternal life and hope and joy, and peace, and love, and all of those things that, that, that your, your word paints as this is the Holy Spirit giving to us. So help us to live in that and rejoice in this, this new year ahead. In Jesus' name I pray.